This comes from Matthew um, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 as we continue our series. It says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We are continuing on in a series we're calling Manifesto, and this is a sermon we're just preaching verse by verse uh, through the Sermon on the Mount. And, and, and basically, let me catch up to speed if you're new here uh, this morning. We looked at these, this, this, these scriptures that are called the Beatitudes that Jesus announces early on in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and basically, what the Beatitudes are is they are declaring that the kingdom is different than what they're going to expect. That the kingdom of God has to first be established in us before it can be established through us. And so he basically he opens up the sermon by saying, this, this is not what you're going to expect. It's kind of an upside down kingdom. And then uh, a couple weeks ago, we looked at uh, the fact that when you are about the kingdom of God, you will, you will encounter opposition. It's not, it's not a, a possibility, it's a certainty. That you will encounter opposition if you are declaring and living out the kingdom of God. It's going to happen. And then last week, we looked at, okay, what is our place in the world? What does it look like for us to live as salt and light in the world? Now, as you can imagine, this Jesus' first audience is extremely Jewish. Uh, and they are hearing this, and it's like a different kind of law to them as they hear it. They're thinking, you know, what is this guy thinking? I mean, is he, is he doing away with the Torah, the law of Moses? Is he kind of setting this aside? And so Jesus, uh, in perfect fashion like he, he normally does, He answers the questions that people are asking in their heads before they ask them with their mouths. And He, he gets into it in Matthew 5.17-20 where we are today. And, and what we're going to see moving from this point forward in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus has come to push the law past our hands and into our hearts. He's pushing it deeper than it's ever been in God's people before. And that's what He's declaring. But the first thing that he's got to do is to tell them how they are to relate to the law before he goes on to talk about, you know, things like, you know, you've heard it said uh, you shouldn't commit adultery. And he says, well, I tell you, if you look at, a, at someone lustfully, it's like you've, you've committed adultery. And so he presses the law past just the physical action into the heart. So he's, he's describing his relationship uh, to the law. So what you have to know here... Uh, is is two groups of people here the scribes and the and the Pharisees are mentioned in Matthew 5:20 and, and what Jesus says is he says unless your righteousness exceeds that of the the scribes and the Pharisees you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven so the the scribes and the Pharisees in this day were seen as like the, the kind of the top tier disciples you know they, these were the guys that really had it together Jesus comes to unpack the fact that, that they don't have it all together as much as people think that they do. That there's hope for sinners, is what he's saying. Now, I think looking back, we look at the Pharisees and we kind of look down our nose at them and we say, those Pharisees, come on guys. 
We kind of look at the Pharisees like that, but in this day, in the original context, people would have looked at the Pharisees and they may have frustrated them, but no one could say that the Pharisees weren't keeping the law. No one, no one would be able to say that except for one who sees hearts, Jesus. And so this is what He comes to declare in this. And what God comes to do, what Jesus comes to do, is He comes, if anything, to heighten the bar of the law. He's not coming to lower the bar. He's coming to heighten it so that the bar of grace can swell in your heart. He's come to take a sledgehammer to each and every one of us in this room and absolutely break us to pieces if we are looking to achieve righteousness in and of ourselves. He's come to destroy that. This is what He's doing in the entire Sermon on the Mount. And He does that through the law and the Gospel. That's how He restores us. So that's our big idea for today is this. We need the law and the Gospel to grow up into Jesus Christ. To come to maturity, we need the law and the Gospel. So we, a lot of us have these... We've been taught that the law really doesn't matter anymore. And so we could just kind of give you a New Testament and that'll be good enough. What Jesus has come to say is that everything that I'm about to tell you in this sermon He's saying, it comes from the law. It's coming from that. I'm just pressing it in deeper. I love what Martin Luther said. Martin Luther is uh, basically one of the guys that, um, that, that kind of pushed forward the Protestant Reformation about 500 years ago. Well, actually, this month, 500 years ago. He says this, the law is for the proud and the Gospel is for the brokenhearted. The law is for the proud and the Gospel is for the brokenhearted. So, whatever you're walking in here with today, the law and the Gospel are what will bring you to maturity in Jesus. So let's just say you're coming here and you're not really a follower of Jesus yet. You're probably going to hear the law and it's going to condemn your heart. You're going to think, man, there's no way that I could reach God's standard. You know what I've been praying for you? I've been praying that the Holy Spirit will convict you and show you another way to live through Jesus Christ. Maybe you're walking in here today and you've been beat up by the world. You are brokenhearted. You are um, you're afraid, right? I mean, last Sunday night, all those people were shot in Las Vegas. Las Vegas is a, a city that's very near to mine and Megan's heart because we lived there for a couple years. You're afraid. You're like, what is happening with the world that's going to hell in a handbasket? You need the Gospel for your broken heart. The law and the Gospel are what bring us to maturity in Jesus. So, what I, what I really think happens when God matures us and He gives us the Gospel after the law is that He is taking the focus off of ourselves and He's reorienting our lives to where we are aimed on God. Because this is the whole issue that the Pharisees had. The Pharisees, they took the law and they leaned it up against heaven and they tried to climb up it to get to God. Just like the Tower of Babel reinvented with the law of God. They, they tried to climb up it. And time and time again, God is trying to knock that thing down to show us that there's no way to get to God. So I've got three points for us. One is the law. Uh, it reveals that we're unable to get to God on our own. The second one is that the Gospel shows us there's another way to, to come back to God. And thirdly, the, the Holy Spirit is what keeps us living in that tension of the law and the Gospel as we mature in God. So let's look first uh, at, at the law. Uh, the law reveals that we are unable to get to God on our own. Uh, so, uh, the law is good because it shoots us straight. Uh, some of you in this room are from the north. How many of you in here would say, y'all, I'm from the north? That's me. You know what I love about you? 
is that you tell me the truth, even when I don't want to hear it. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> You're like, you, you ride with me. You know, I'm not really, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm maybe not a great driver. You tell me how it is. You're the worst driver I've ever seen before, bro. Like, how did you get a license? Now, well, if, if I'm riding with a Southerner, and, uh, and, and you know, we're, we're kind of going down Sugarloaf, and I cut somebody off, and they're like, oh, bless your heart, honey. You know, you'll be okay. It's all right, honey. That scared me a little bit, but bless your heart. You know, see, see we, we maybe the Southerners, they don't, they're not so forthright with the truth. They're a little more maybe grace-leaning without the truth. And then, and then the, the Northerners are a little more truth-heavy without the grace. Maybe there's this kind of tension there. Well, I will say this. The law is of a Northern persuasion, Okay. The laws of a northern persuasion. You can write that down. Take it with you. So all your northern friends that offend you, you're like, man, you just give me the law. I love it. The laws of a northern persuasion, meaning that he tells us how it is. This is what God has come to do. He's not doing us any favors by making us believe that we're farther along in our faith journey than we really are. And so this is what the, the Pharisees would do over and over again, is they would lower the bar of the law and make it something that they could achieve. And so as we, as we look at our, at our text here, I want you to turn Matthew 5. We're going to kind of walk through it just for a few minutes here. Um, I want you to know this. If you have a cheap law, meaning something that you can actually do on your own without the work of Jesus, then you're going to have cheap grace. Cheap law equals cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a lot about this. But costly law, meaning the law that, that, is, that is really the full measure of what it looks like to live in a relationship with God, and it leaves you, no matter how righteous you really are, it leaves you guilty and hopeless, that's going to lead to a more valuable grace in your life. Because you're going to see your desperate need of Jesus. Jesus has come and He's given us the law and He showed us the law so that you and I will be starved for God's grace. So we'll be starved for it. So Matthew 5, 17-20, let's look at verses 17 and 18. Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. It's not like I'm preaching something different. Instead, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To fulfill means to, to fill out, to tease out the law, to show you what it really means. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, which is a Greek letter or a dot, like a small accent, nothing's going to pass away from the law. It all matters and we need it all. Nothing is going to pass away until it's accomplished. Therefore, he, he goes on to say, whoever relaxes one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, to show them, hey, hey it doesn't really matter. It's okay, man. You don't have to live up to the law. That's, that's so OT. We don't need the Old Testament anymore. Whoever does that, Jesus says, is least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. He paints an impossible picture to get to heaven with your own resources. Is what he does. He paints an absolutely impossible picture. He shows that everything he say, everything he's saying, is based on what Moses came to give them—the law and the prophets. Later on, everything he's saying is built on that foundation. In verses 19 and 20, he's saying that while his teach, teaching is in complete harmony with what the Old Testament scriptures say, the Torah, it. His teaching is in complete disharmony with how the Pharisees and the scribes are living. So there's this impasse there. 
And so, so here's, here's the check for us as we look at the law. Uh, we're all trying to get to God. I, I don't care if you're in here today and you say, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in any of that kind of stuff. You're still trying to do something to assuage your conscience at night that you can live forever. That you can have meaning in life. It, do, it doesn't matter what your foundation is or what you say you believe. We're all made with this magnetic draw, this pull to try to get back to God. The question is, where are the resources that we're going to use to get back to God? Where do they come from? That, that's, the, that's the question for us to get at. Because we have a tendency to assume that the only way to get back to God is through our own resources. We are born living that way. This is why Jesus, this is why the Scriptures give us the law. So, so how, do we, how do we check this inner Pharisee in all of us? Because... Uh, each and every one of us in this room have pharisaical tendencies to try to achieve the law on our own, to make ourselves right with God on our own. How do we check those? You see, what happens uh, when the, the inner Pharisee in each of us comes out, it, it's when you take one part of God's Word, one part of God's law, and you magnify it at the expense of all of the other things. So you, you think about uh, the Pharisees. Uh, they were really busting Jesus' chops over the Sabbath. Jesus heals some people on the Sabbath, and all they can think about is how He broke the law. And Jesus you know, tells them in, in various places, you, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law for the appearance of the law. You've, you've made this bad exchange there. So, so what is it in your life that you are tempted to magnify at the expense of other things? What is it for you? I'll give you, I'll give you some uh, examples. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's people that sin differently than you. Uh, maybe, maybe it's people that have a sexually promiscuous lifestyle, and your lifestyle is pretty much on point. You know? And so you look at them, you're like, yeah, man, yikes. But maybe in your heart of hearts, you're full of lust. And you're full of dishonesty. And you lack integrity, but no one can see it on the outside. But you look at others and you judge them because you can see their sin and it's different than yours. There's, 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 no other, there's no quicker way to get into an argument with someone else than to put two people who sin differently in the same room together, right? Maybe, uh, so, so for me, I've, I have realized over the last three or four years that, that I've been kind of... I guess, wounded by spiritual leaders in my life. People that have said one thing, kind of lived another. Uh, hypocrites, as you, as you may call them. Uh, and so I began to build up this wall within me that said, man, how could you do that? I mean, how dare you live that way or say that thing and, then, and not do this thing? And then Jesus just really showed me that I'm exactly the same. It just hasn't come out yet. Or it hasn't come out in the same way. We're all in the same boat together, desperately needing God's grace. So maybe a diagnostic question for you as you think about what the law needs to do in your life, because it needs to do some crushing work in each of us. When you take in God's Word or when you hear God's Word, does it make you proud or does it make you desperate? Does it make you proud or does it make you desperate? Because the key for the Pharisees is when they read God's Word, it made them proud. <laughs> Look at me. Get me, God. I, I, I fast twice a week. I, I give it more than a tithe. I, I mean, I do all of these things. God, look at me. This is a pretty good checklist. But then you look at the publican in that, in that story that Jesus tells. 
And he beats his heart, beats his breast, and he, he can't even look up to God. And he says, please be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. What is your position? And, and I would say this, if there is a particular issue in your life that comes up right now, that you read God's Word and it kind of makes you proud. Maybe you've got really good theology. It just kind of makes you proud. That's the place that the Holy Spirit wants to press into your life this morning. That's the place He wants to disrupt you trying to get to God on your own. Because the, the, the reason that Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount is to make us starving for God's grace. And then He gives it to us. We've got to be hungry if we're going to eat it. Secondly, the Gospel. God makes a way to return to Himself. And He does this through the cross. So, the Scripture says Jesus comes to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. This, this has massive implications for how we live as Christians. But the thing I want to address in this point is, how exactly does Jesus come to fulfill the law? And I would say that the cross is kind of the centerpiece of how Jesus has come to fulfill the law. The work that He has come to do. So, so Jesus fulfills the law uh, through enduring the cross and then sending the Holy Spirit. So I want to talk about the cross first, and the next point I'm going to talk about the Holy Spirit of how He fulfills the law uh, in us. Uh, but in order for us to understand what the cross really means, we have to understand what the law really demands. Because if we don't understand what the law demands both, po both positively and negatively, the work of the cross will be very small in our lives. So it'll just be me and Jesus and salvation. It won't be... It won't, be, it won't be global and worldwide and, and majestic. It'll be small. So this is why we've we got to read the Old Testament, church. We've we, we got, we got to get into what Jesus has actually come to do and what He's actually come to fulfill. I mean, Galatians 4 kind of tells us... Uh, well, the book of Galatians in general really talks about the relationship of the law and the Gospel and what Jesus came to do from a legal standpoint. And in one of these verses in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, the Scriptures say this, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, listen to this, born under the law. He was born under the law. And why was He born under the law? To redeem those who were born under the law as well. Meaning us. That we were born under the law and because we could not keep it, we are now cursed because of the law. Not able to have a relationship with God. Let, let me explain it like this. The, the law is um, it's kind of like an MRI. Okay, the, the MRI shows us what's wrong. Many of you have had an MRI before. MRIs are really scary things to do, right? Because what they're looking for is something that is not right with your body. The, the law is like an, an, an MRI, and, and, and many of us walk around with our scan results in our little manila folder, and we know the prognosis, and we live like it's the only thing that we've got. We live like that's our only hope. But when Christ Jesus comes, and He bears the weight of the cross, He endures the wrath of the cross, He actively obeys in our place, He exchanges those scan results and we get His. We're in remission forever. He gives us new hearts. He gives us new lives to live in light of, out of the Gospel. Here's how we can be confident of that. I just want to share a few things with you here. Let's look at the law's demands and its, and its consequences. The, the demands are this. The law demands perfect obedience in exchange for eternal life. 
What, what do we see in Genesis 2? We see a command given and a promise attached to that command. That if you obey, you'll live forever. You'll never die. A lot of theologians call this the covenant of works. It's given to all of humanity. We're all born into it because we're all... Our first parents are Adam and Eve. So we're all born into this covenant of works that if we can obey, then we can live. The problem is we've all inherited original sin. And we cannot obey. We cannot obey. And so the law demands perfect obedience in exchange for eternal life. The consequences of not being able to do that are that disobedience requires death. Disobedience requires death. And this is found all over the Bible. You read through Deuteronomy, through Exodus, Leviticus, you'll see if you do these things, then you will live, right? If you can do this, then you'll live. The problem is that none of us can do it, so none of us can live. And what the Pharisees came to do, and the scribes, is they came to to say, you know, actually we can do this. I mean, look. I mean, no one knew that I was being dishonest in my mind, and I didn't really tell a lie. So, I mean, I, I did it. I mean, I'm good to go. Let me pat myself on the back. But none of us can do it, so none of us can live. But, but Jesus, our elder brother, listen to what He comes and He does. He bears the cross. Now, now the cross, we tend to think, is this is kind of me and Jesus thing, and it's kind of, we, we sentimentalize and sanitize the cross. We, we make it into something that, um, and I'm not drawing judgment against anyone who's wearing a cross necklace now or you got a big cross tattoo. I remember when I was a youth pastor, there was this, I was preaching a sermon on the cross and I said, I said, you know what the cross is? <laughs> having, a, having a cross around your neck is like having an electric chair around your neck. <laughs> and they're all like, <gasps> they're all like freaking out, you know. Um, but, but my point was that the cross, it means one thing up until Jesus bears it and lives after it. Death. Execution. And the beautiful thing about this is what Galatians 3.13 says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And then he goes on to say that anyone who's hanged on a tree is cursed. So what Jesus comes and He does on the cross is He inhabits the curse for us. He takes on the curse of the law because of our disobedience for us. So, and he does this two ways, actively and passively. Let me just tell you, this, this is a kind of a really theological concept here, but Jesus achieves the demands of the law through his active obedience. So what does he do? He lives out the perfect law from the heart in everything that he thinks, everything that he says, and everything that he does with his life. He actively obeys his Father in heaven perfectly. And there were times when it looked like to the lawmen of the day that he wasn't doing that, but he obeyed from the heart. Secondly, he endures the consequences of our disobedience through his passive obedience. What does he say in the garden when he's praying to his father? He says, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup away from me. Make there be another way. If God would have given him the out then, we would still be responsible and we would need to be cursed for our sin. You see why you see why he endured the cross with a father called him to endure the crosses so that we could be so certain, so confident in our standing before a holy God in heaven. That the law could become a comfort to us because every time we read it, we could even be like David, where he sings about the law. I'm like, Are you singing about the law, David? I mean, really? 
He sings about the law to delight in his heart because it shows us who our Father in heaven is. And it shows us who our elder brother Jesus is and what he's come to do for us. The cross, church, is the best news that we could hear today because Jesus isn't at the right hand of the Father in heaven looking down, regretting his decision to endure the cross for you. Not one single bit. In fact, he is so filled with joy because his work is now applied to your life through faith. All of it. All of his obedience is yours. All of the wrath poured out against sin has been dealt with. I mean, listen to how Paul says it. He says, indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For, for His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. This comes from Philippians 3.8 and following. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Listening, listen to this right here. He talks about two types of righteousness here. Not having a righteousness that comes of my own that comes from the law. That's not what's going to save me, Paul says. And if you read Philippians 3 and 4, Paul was a guy that could look at that and say, look, I'm pretty good. But instead he says, no, 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 that's not it. But instead, that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness, that re- that, uh, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is how we become free from the bondage of the law which leads us to make the world about us. When we turn the the law up on a ladder and we try to achieve for God. This is how we get free from that bondage. And many of us walk around in that bondage day in, day out, wondering if we've done enough for God. And I want to challenge you, I want to encourage you in those moments, and I, and I, I don't want to gloss over those moments because they're real for us, aren't they? They're real. We feel it. We get insecure. We get fearful. Look to the cross in those moments and ask, was that enough? Was that enough? And the resounding answer from heaven is this always. Yes. It is finished. That's what Jesus came to do for you. And as you look at the law, and as you look at the cross, you can be certain because Jesus rose from the dead and applied His work to you. I'm glad to know that I'm not the only one that struggles with this. I mean, I look back in, in writers of past, guys like John Bunyan. John Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, which is one of the best-selling books of all times. And, and it, it really describes this allegory of the Christian life. He writes it in this way. And, and John Bunyan was a guy that struggled a lot. And he wrote at one point, he wrote um, a spiritual autobiography about his life. And this comes from it. I want to read this for you. It says, every little touch would hurt my conscience. The law would convict him. It would hurt his conscience. But one day I was passing in the field and suddenly I thought of a sentence. Your righteousness is in heaven. With the eyes of faith, I saw Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. And suddenly realized, there is my righteousness. Wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, where is your righteousness? For that was right before Him. I saw that my good frame of heart could not make my righteousness better, nor a bad frame could not make my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says this, now my chains fall off indeed. I felt delivered from slavery to guilt and fears, and I went home rejoicing for the love and graces of God. Now I can look from myself to Him. Christ is my treasure, my righteousness, 
Christ is my wisdom, righteousness, holiness, and salvation. You see, what he notices here is because your righteousness is seated at the right hand of the Father, that it doesn't matter if you knock it out of the park tomorrow. God cannot love you anymore because when we start going back to try to lean on our own righteousness, it's always insufficient funds, right? It's always, you're trying to use the card, you can't buy it, you don't have enough money. It's always insufficient funds. When we remember that our righteousness is in heaven, the tank is always full. It's full for us. And on the flip side of that, if we have a terrible day, and we think there's no way that God could ever love me. There's no way that, I mean, I have sinned, and I've knowingly sinned. I've just walked straight into this over and over again. Why can't I stop peeling the paint off the dresser, right? Why can't I? It's an illustration I used a while back. But why can't I stop doing that? And we see that God loves us the same because our righteousness is in heaven. It's this beautiful comfort that God gives us. So I want to land this plane now by talking about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we look at the law and the gospel and what they mean for us. So how does the law apply to Christians? We find that we can't get to God on our own. And then we need Jesus' righteousness to secure us. We see that the law has this shaping reality for the Christian because the work of the Holy Spirit, friends, is to conform you like a pot on a potter's wheel to the image of Jesus. And Jesus is the master architect shaping us into that. He's, he's shaping us into His image. So there's, there's two promises from the Older Testament that you need, to, you need to grab onto that will help connect the dots for you. The first one is this. The law is a matter of the head before it's a matter of the hands. This is always the intention of God's law. Jeremiah 31-33 says this as Jeremiah prophesies about a new covenant that God would give. He says, I'll put my law within them. This was different because the law was on the tablets, right? And they carried them around the Ark of the Covenant. They had the law before them. But now, God would do a new thing. He would put His law in them and He would write it on the tablets of our hearts that He will be our God and that we will be His people. Now secondly, it takes a new heart to live the reality of the fulfilled law in our lives. That the old heart cannot absorb the grace of God because it is too stony, it is too hard. It will always seek to achieve the law on its own. It takes a new heart. Now Ezekiel prophesies about this in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. He says, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, God says. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And listen to this. And that spirit that he puts within us, what does it do? What is its job? To cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God gives us His Spirit so that we can be comforted by the law. And then our lives ultimately look more like that as we follow Jesus, as we seek the face of God. Notice the difference in the new covenant that He makes though. It's not the covenant of works which says, if you obey, then you'll live. It's this. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. End of the story. This covenant is not broken because God is the one that keeps it. So what's that mean for us as Christians? That means that it's not up to your performance tomorrow morning on how well you knock it out of the park for you to be secure in God. It's not up to it. Now, 
To some of you, that makes you exceedingly glad. To others of you, you think, man, I wanted to have something to do with it. I mean, don't we all kind of do that a little bit? I, mean, I just wanted to have, I just want to have a little bit in there. God, I mean, yeah, I just want to have a little bit in the deal. It's way better news to know that Jesus achieves it for us. It's way better, extraordinary, extraordinary good. So my question to you as I, as I close this is this. Is the Word of God bringing condemnation to you this morning? Because there's only one group of people in here that it, that it should be bringing condemnation to, and that's the people who are not trusting in Jesus. But the good news for you, if that's, if that's the boat that you're in this morning, is that there's grace for you. You have to believe by faith. And then Romans 8.1 says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who believe. So all of us in here have the opportunity to walk out of this room no longer being condemned. And now, now if you're a Christian that's walking in light of who God is, and you're feeling condemnation, that's not from the Holy Spirit. That's from the enemy. Because the work of the Spirit in our lives is to give us conviction and comfort. Jesus says, come to Me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. But He also talks about the discipline that will be necessary to conform us to the image of Jesus. So about this time, you're probably wondering why in the world is there a huge green chair on the stage? Anybody? Some of you have been trying to piece the story together in your mind, like how, you know, where's this green chair coming from? This green chair, believe it or not, has come from my bedroom at my house. So you can't judge it. You can't say, man, it's got some stains on there. It's kind of ugly. Now, the story of this green chair is that uh, my, fa- my father-in-law, uh, you know, he's a contractor and he sometimes acquires furniture and he just dumps it off at our house. And it's not, it's not appealing. I mean, this is not like a new piece we bought for the church. I mean, it's not that great, right? This green chair goes into our room and uh, probably about a year ago, the, the green chair just kind of sat in the corner of the room and occasionally we would sit in it or whatever. And it's kind of nice because you can sit two people in it and, and that kind of stuff. But the green chair all of a sudden became for the kids uh, the chair that uh, they would have to go to if there were disciplinary issues that we needed to deal with. So here's what it sounds like in the house. You know, one brother hits one sister. All right, go to the green chair, kids. Oh, Dad, not the green chair. I hate the green chair. I mean, we're pretty sure at this point that anytime the kids see a green chair, they're like, you know, they need to go to the counselor. I mean, they're just kind of all messed up because they see it. They're like, oh, green chair. I can never see them again. So go to the chair, green you know, go to the go to the go to the chair, kids. Go to the green chair, and you know. And sometimes that's you know physical discipline. Sometimes that's a prayer together. Sometimes that's a talk. Sometimes it's time out. It's discipline. It's what it serves for that purpose. A couple weeks ago, Megan and I had this astonishing reality that the green chair for us we've always seen as kind of this place of punishment. This place where we kind of correct the kids and you know help keep them out of jail and. Uh, But you know what we realize is that the green chair is not only a source of conviction and discipline for our kids, it's also a source of comfort. You know where our kids want to sleep whenever it's storming outside? Green chair. You know where our kids want to come and spend time when they're doing some independent work? Green chair. You know where our kids want to come after they've had a nightmare? The green chair. I think God's law to the Christian is much like the green chair. It will be the source in your life 
of God conforming you into the image of Jesus through the Spirit. He will show you His law. It will crush you at times. It will seem unbearable. But it will also be the source of greatest comfort to you because you know that your righteousness comes from somewhere else. This is the beauty of the Gospel church and it's available to any who would believe. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we thank You for the good news of Your Gospel this morning that, that You have sent Your Son in the place of sinners to, um, to achieve the demands of the law both positively and negatively. That You've set a standard. That You're not a wishy-washy God. You know what You require. And You have given us what You require in Jesus. So Lord, for those in here this morning that struggle to believe that they can be one with You and that You can be pleased in them, oh God, I pray that You'd send Your Spirit in a powerful way to their hearts to comfort them, to remind them that it's not up to us. That there's another way. There's one that stands at the right hand of the Father in heaven that speaks that he, He's an advocate for us. That we're found in Him as the Apostle Paul says. And He in us. Lord, send the Holy Spirit in an even more palpable way this morning that we would we'd believe and we'd rest. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.